This is episode number 285 with Carmine Gallo. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? If you want to listen to my episodes one day earlier than they are released anywhere else, you have to download the app Himalaya and follow my show. Himalaya is free, super easy to use, and has every podcast you can think of. I love that you can leave comments under each episode and even create episode playlists. Make sure you check it out today. is a Wall Street Journal bestselling author, international keynote speaker, Harvard educator, and communication advisor for the world's most admired brands. A communication guru, according to Publishers Weekly, his books have been translated into more than 30 languages. In his new book, Five Stars, The Communication Secrets to Get from Good to Great, he argues that good isn't good enough in the age of ideas. As the combined forces of globalization, artificial intelligence, and automation disrupts every field and every career. Among his nine books are Talk Like Ted, The Presentation Secrets of Steve Jobs, and The Storyteller's Secret. He is one of the most influential voices in communication, business, and leadership, and has been featured in the New York Times and Success Magazine. He has built a reputation for transforming leaders into powerful storytellers and communicators at the world's largest and most admired brands. He is an instructor of storytelling and communication at Harvard University. He also writes popular columns for Forbes.com and Inc.com. And in today's episode, we chat about his story and how he got to where he is today doing the work that he now does. We also talk about how to become a communication guru and an epic storyteller to increase your business and following. We also chat about why Steve Jobs was an epic storyteller and what we can learn from him, the communication secrets to get from good to great and the formula to follow for success, how to structure an epic keynote talk or a TED talk, the ultimate length for your talks, how to move through fear of public speaking, plus so much more. And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 285. And before we dive into today's conversation, I want to read the review of the week. And this week, it is a five-star review titled Obsessed from Health with Beck. And she says, absolutely love this channel. As a super passionate nutritionist, I love continually learning. This helps me with that as every single person that Melissa interviews is highly qualified, respected, and full of insightful information. I love her voice too. It's so engaging and inspiring and you can hear her passion and genuine desire to help others come through. Beck, thank you so much for that beautiful review. I'm so grateful. Thank you for your kind words. And as a little thank you gift, 
I want you to send a screenshot of your review, email it in to me at hello at melissaambrosini.com and I'm going to give you my wildly wealthy meditation. That is for anyone who leaves a review. All you got to do is send me a screenshot to hello at melissaambrosini.com and I will gift you my wildly wealthy guided meditation. And if you want to get my bursting with love guided meditation, you can leave a review on Amazon for either Mastering Your Mean Girl or Open Wide or both. And again, send me a screenshot and I'll send you over my bursting with love meditation too. And now without further ado, let's bring on this super awesome Carmine Gallo. Carmine, it is so great to have you on the show. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? (laughs) Scrambled eggs and wheat toast. (laughs) I love eggs. Well, I am so pumped to have you on the show. But before we kind of dive deep into your work, can you tell us about who you are, how you got to where you are, and how you got to doing the work that you now do? Oh, sure. Yeah, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be on your show and to be speaking to your global audience. I love it. Terrific. Yes, I was a newscaster, a television anchor for about 15 years. And in the tail end of my career as a television broadcaster, I worked for CNN in New York, but specifically covering business news. I live in California, but I was out in New York for a few years. And I realized that very few business professionals were very good at public speaking and communication. And I realized that the same faces kept showing up again and again, because I was sort of new to the business news world. And we had a Rolodex, you know, literally the old, old fashioned Rolodexes back then. And it was the same people that we went to every week, the same analysts, the same economists, or the same stock experts. Some of those people now have their own shows 15 years later. And so I really began to realize that it's, it's communication that sets people apart, not necessarily the, their expertise. You have to have a fundamental level of expertise to stand out, but it's the people who are great speakers who can translate their ideas to the average person who tended to become just more prominent in their roles. And so I I began to take what I learned in journalism and storytelling, and I wrote books on the subject. My first big book that became an international bestseller was called The Presentation Secrets of Steve Jobs. And I still believe to this day that Steve Jobs was the greatest business storyteller of our time. Then I wrote a book. I wrote several other books on Apple. I wrote a book on on the TED Talks and how to give a TED-style presentation. And I've written books on storytelling Uh, And my latest book was called Five Stars, which simply means how to get from good, because a lot of people I work with and who I've met are are already very good at communication, how to get to that next level to set you apart. Uh, So now I'm an advisor. I'm a speaker. I teach at Harvard a couple of times a year, and I live in California, and I am obsessed and passionate about communication in every way. I love it. There's so many things I want to dive into. I want to dive into the Steve Jobs thing. I want to dive into the talk like Ted. But firstly, how can we become communication gurus? Because 
I am a massive believer, like you, in that with business, we are always storytelling. And that's what connects us. That's what allows people to trust us enough to buy our products or our services. So how can we become communication gurus and how can we tell better stories? Melissa, I was going to save this until the end of the podcast, but I'll tell everyone now. I just don't want to scare off our audience. It does take work. <laughs> it, it, it takes some work to, to become an outstanding communicator. Every great speaker who I've met or who I've interviewed or the people who I've, I've written about, you wouldn't believe how much time and dedication they, they really do put into it. Uh, Steve Jobs rehearsed for hours on end, weeks before his keynote addresses. He studied communication and writing. He was uh, very thoughtful about it. There are a number of people who were terrified of public speaking early in their career. A notable example is the billionaire Warren Buffett, who says that public speaking can increase your value by 50% instantly. But he was terrified of public speaking. And he has said this very openly. He took a couple of courses so that he would be forced to speak in front of groups. But he realized that in order to get to the next level in his career, when he was a stockbroker early in his career, that he had to get comfortable in front of groups. So it, I believe that public speaking and communication, if you want to get to that guru stage, is a skill. It is a skill. There's an art to it and there's a science to it. But anyone can become a significantly better, much more persuasive speaker than they are today. However, Melissa, and I think your I think your listeners can handle this, it takes some work. It takes dedication. So what are some of the things that we can do? Like some practical things that we can do to become better storytellers and better communicators. And whether that's just someone someone listening who wants to give a better presentation or someone who wants to do a TED talk or someone who wants to start hosting live events. Like what are some practical things that we can do? Okay, uh, let me start really easily. And, I, and a, a number of people I don't think do this. Watch TED Talks. Watch, watch great speakers and great presenters. So the first step to becoming a great speaker is to watch and study and, and really think through how do these other people who I admire, they can be anybody. They can be TED speakers. They can be uh, business professionals. Now that we have YouTube, are you kidding? It's great. When I was writing the presentation secrets of Steve Jobs, Melissa, every major keynote that Steve Jobs ever delivered publicly is on YouTube. Why don't you take a look at the 2007 iPhone introduction? I know that a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs. Do not give another pitch or a presentation without watching the introduction of the iPhone in 2007. It's magnificent storytelling. There's a few things that you'll see. You will see someone who is very comfortable on stage. He's got a smile on his face. He's funny. He's happy. He's passionate. He's enthusiastic. He's not reading from notes. There was a lot of rehearsal that went into that. Take a look at the slides that Steve Jobs is using. There are no bullet points. There's very little text. Because presentations that work best have a combination of images and visuals as well as text. 
not just bullet points alone, which is how most people create PowerPoints. So I honestly think the very first step to becoming a much better speaker than you are today, be aware, start watching great speakers of the past or the present or people in companies that you may admire. I watch those presentations constantly. If, if, if the CEO of Google gives a presentation and it's a public presentation, I'll often try to watch it or see it on YouTube because there are some really good speakers and presenters out there. Watch those TED links as well. Yeah, there are so many incredible TED Talks out there and TEDx Talks, and you do learn a lot from watching other people. And whenever I do watch a speaker, because I'm a speaker as well, whenever I do watch one, I'm always taking notes on what I'm really enjoying and what I'm feeling drawn to. A particular speaker that I love that I feel very inspired by is Brene Brown. Do you know her? Absolutely. Yes, I don't know her personally, but I have followed her. Yeah, I think she is an incredible speaker. So they are some great tips. I really, really love that. Hey, speaking of Brene Brown, before we forget, she has one of my favorite quotes that I use in my own keynotes. She said, stories are just data with a soul. So she's really into storytelling as well. So it's, it's interesting that you picked up that Brene Brown is one of your favorite speakers. She's a storyteller. I think most of your listeners will, will realize once they start thinking about who are my favorite speakers, who are the people who inspire me, or maybe not even inspiring, but just folks who have given business presentations, who you thought were really interesting presentations, you'll realize more often than not, there's a storytelling element to it. And I think back to when I was in school and my favorite school teachers, they were the ones that were incredible storytellers. I remember my drama teacher, Miss Radvan, she was such a great storyteller. And she really, like you were saying, Steve Jobs did, you know, she used her facial expressions and she used different multimedia to express what she was trying to express. And then I think back to some other teachers that just got up there. They were monotone. They had no expression on their face and they taught. Not only is that incredibly boring, but for me, like I found it harder to retain the information. So I know that there's a lot of teachers that would be listening to this and a lot of people listening that have children. And it's really something that we need to think about is like, you know, are we sending them to schools where there are teachers that are really inspiring to them so that they can grow up to be the best version of themselves. Absolutely. I, I love the fact that a lot of educators do read my material because education and public speaking and storytelling, they, they all go hand in hand. Uh, the great educators are those ones who can make the material come alive. One of my recent just examples were people who I think are excellent educators and who study communication is the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm sure you're familiar with him, and I'm sure many others are as well. He is very interesting. I had an interview with him for my previous, for that book I told you about, the Five Stars book. And so I had these discussions with Neil deGrasse Tyson, which were fascinating. He thinks through communication in a way that very few educators do. And one of his favorite techniques is, again, a storytelling theme, which is analogies or metaphors, always taking something and comparing it, taking something abstract, like a big number or a big data point. There are more 
stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on, on all the beaches in the world, you know, something like that. So what he does is he'll take a big abstract number that most people can't get their head around and connect it to something that's familiar. Well, Melissa, what is he doing? That, that's making an analogy. Well, that goes back to Aristotle 2,000 years ago. So I, I think that the fundamental principles of storytelling and communication have always been with us. We just need to start applying it to a business presentation or an entrepreneurship pitch or in a class or instruction. We know how to do this. I think in our PowerPoint culture, we've gotten away from it a little bit. How does this translate for people who are building businesses online? It's going to be different to giving a talk in person. Yes. Okay. That's a very good question. Now, having said that, uh, yes, you're absolutely right. This is a lot different than giving a talk in person. If someone is building something online, two things. First, understand that they still have to be persuasive if they want to get any kind of support for their online business. So they still need to have the skills that we're talking about. They still need to build the skills of communication. As far as online, let's always think about the power of storytelling. One of the stories that you can tell is the story about other people, case studies. So when people go to your online platform, whatever that might be, they still want, they want to see stories of other people. They want to see those case studies. They want to see those customers that you've, that you've satisfied in one way or another. They want to see happy customers. That to me is still storytelling. And, and there's a big trend in that. If you go to a lot of major companies now, they are online storytellers. Let me give you one example. There's a giant software company called SAP. It's a global company. The head of marketing for SAP calls herself the chief storytelling officer because she was hired. Yes, she was hired for her marketing background, but marketing as a storyteller. So what she has had to do online is take this very complicated product that SAP makes, which is business-to-business -business software. It's very big, complex, expensive, and create stories that their salespeople can use. And when their customers go online, they can find people online that are very similar to themselves and look at their stories of how SAP is making their lives better. So to me, Melissa, whether it's online or in person, it still comes down to storytelling. I, I don't think most business professionals and maybe it's because it's, it's a little more on the creative side. It's not just all the data and finances. I don't think a lot of people think through being storytellers because they think that's more for screenplay writing or for novelists or writing. No, it actually takes, it, it applies to everything you do when it comes to communicating your brand's promise to a customer or any other stakeholder. Can I give you a quick story that I think will apply to your? listeners, the entrepreneurs in the audience? Oh, of course. Go for it. So I am someone, obviously, who's immersed in storytelling, and I minimized it once. I, I, I demeaned my own value, I guess. I was speaking to a, a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, and his name is Jeff Ralston. He is now the president of a seed accelerator or a seed venture company called Y Combinator. Now, Y Combinator, it's not, a, it's not a household name, but it was the first company 
to invest in Reddit, to invest in Airbnb. In fact, we wouldn't have Airbnb if it wasn't for Y Combinator. So your, your listeners can look that up. Jeff Ralston is the president. I'm having a conversation with him, and this was on this is on YouTube, so it was very open. We were having this video, I was recording it, and he mentioned I mentioned uh, storytelling as a soft skill. That's what I called it. I said, Jeff, I want to talk to you about storytelling, and and I know it's a soft skill. So, in other words, Melissa, I kind of minimized it because, well. He's a venture capitalist. Isn't he more concerned about finances and metrics and growth numbers? So I minimized it, and I, and I sort of demeaned it myself. And I said, oh, that's a, it's just a soft skill. And he looked at me and said, well, Carmine, if you come into my office and you're an entrepreneur, uh, often you don't even have a really working product. You have may, maybe a minimal, you know, it's called MVP, minimal viable product. Uh, you may just have an idea. You need people like me, investors, to back you, not necessarily your product, but to back you, to, to follow in your journey. We want to be a part of your journey. He said, if you can't tell a story, then you won't even get through our front door. You need to be a storyteller to bring us in and convince us to go along on your journey. And then he looked at me, Melissa, and he said, you may call it a soft skill. I call it a fundamental skill. Mm, oh, my gosh. I mean, my jaw dropped because I said, I'm the storyteller. I should be the one saying this is a fundamental skill. Not so I don't need someone else to tell me that. And yet I'm so used to this, this whole area. That we're talking about today as being soft. Oh, it's the soft skills that we're. No, we're not. This is a fundamental skill to get from where you are today to where you want to be. Yes, yes. What are some other communication secrets to get from good to great, which you talk about? Well, let's talk about. Uh, let's stay on this concept of story, and let me give you your listeners something very specific that they can use. Because I, I do feel as though people, they, they look at storytelling as it, it's kind of abstract to people who aren't used to it. So can I give you a very specific tip that will get you from good to great? This is a, an incredible technique. And it does kind of fall under the broader category of storytelling, but it's a technique that that's just works like magic. A great story in any way, in whether it's a movie, whether it's a, often a novel, Great stories are, are typically three acts. So this is the old three-act structure goes back to the beginning of time. Most presenters do not use a three-act structure. So if you have an idea or a product or a company or anything that you need to communicate to someone else and get them to back you or to be a part of your journey, follow the classical three-act structure. And the three-act structure is this. Act one, let's pick a movie. Okay, let's pick any movie. If your listeners can think of a movie they just saw, almost every movie falls into three-act structure. Act one is almost always the backstory, the setup. You need to understand the character's world. Star Wars is actually a perfect three-act structure, and George Lucas studied this structure. So act one is always the backstory. Introduce the characters. Here's your world as it is today. 
Act two is where the villains are introduced, the conflict, the hurdles that your protagonist or your hero has to overcome. And act three is the resolution. Everyone lives happily ever after. So all of your listeners are familiar with the three-act structure. Within that three-act structure, there can be a lot of creativity. But most movies today fall in a three-act structure. A great presentation also follows a three-act structure. Steve Jobs was brilliant at this. So for your listeners, for your entrepreneurs in the audience, think about your presentation in three acts. Act one is the current state of the world. Act two is the conflict. Act three is the resolution. Let me give you an example. Steve Jobs, 2007, as I mentioned earlier, introduces the iPhone. Do you think he just can't watch the video? He doesn't just walk out on stage and say, we've got a great new product. It's called a phone or it's called a, a, a smartphone. It's unlike anything we've ever done. Take a look at it. No, he didn't start with a product. In fact, he started with at least five or seven minutes talking about what led Apple into this new area, why their, their background in design, their background in consumer products. And then he segued into part two, which is the villain, which were the current category of smartphones on the market. Remember, we had the RIM pagers and all that back then. And so he looked at the villains, the problems that people had that they didn't even know they had. And it was only in Act 3 that he finally gets to, and today we're introducing this new product that will solve all of your problems, the iPhone, and let me talk about it now. So he didn't even get to until Act 3. Act 3 was the product. This is, it's a template. It's a formula. And if it works for movies, Melissa, it works for a presentation too, because this is how people like to absorb their content. Yeah, and they embed it so much more deeply when it is delivered this way. And they get taken on a journey, that hero's journey. You know, they get taken on that journey. So I know when I'm watching talks, when they take you through that three-part structure, you literally lose yourself. You go on this journey with them. So I love that. Now, can you talk to us about the TED Talks and the book that you wrote, Talk Like TED? Can you talk to us about that? Because you know I gave my first TED Talk in September last year, 2019. So talk to us about the structure of TED Talks for anyone listening who might want to do one and what are some key components of those talks? Yes, you do your inner critic, isn't that right? It's called How Your Inner Critic is Holding You Back. Okay, so we're going to use that example uh, just as a stepping off point, okay? So your TED Talk was how your inner critic is holding you back. How your inner critic is holding you back. Okay, about eight words. By the way, everything we're about to discuss regarding TED, it's not just for your listeners who want to give a TED Talk. The reason why I wrote the book, Talk Like TED, is for anyone who wants to be a better communicator or public speaker. What can we learn from TED speakers or the TED conference? I just wanted to clarify that. One of the things that I've learned that I think just works brilliantly in any communication is the TED conference makes sure that all of their speakers can identify or summarize their presentation 
in one short sentence. I've realized that out of the thousands of TED Talks, I put them in a spreadsheet. I looked at all of the all the headlines or all all of the topic headlines, like how your inner critic is holding you back, for example. I looked at all of them and I put them all in a spreadsheet. Melissa, not one is over 140 characters that can fit in a Twitter post. In other words, they're all short. They're so short that they can easily fit in a Twitter post. Now, that's not conscious on their part, but the point is that you need to come up with what I call a headline. Ted calls it a through line. So we're actually reaching the same conclusion from two different fields. Ted calls it a through line. I've called it a headline. But the point is, can you summarize your presentation in one sentence? That's a big deal. And it's a great way for you to start your own presentation, not only if it's a a talk in front of a group or if if it's just for a customer one-on-one. What is the one thing that you want your customer to know? What is the one thing that you want your listener to know? And can you summarize it in one sentence? It's difficult. It's actually hard to do uh, because you have to think through this and, and condense it. But this is the fundamental element of all great presentations, all great speeches, especially on TED. They can summarize it in one sentence. And so I I think this is a fantastic exercise. Next time you give a presentation, can you summarize what your major point is in one sentence or less? Yeah, I think that's a really powerful thing to do. It helps you get really clear on your message and what you're actually trying to deliver and convey. Because I know when I was writing my TED Talk, they kept on saying, you know, you get a lot of training, which is incredible. And they kept on saying, just one idea, one idea, one idea. Because I'm like, but I have 45 million ideas. It's like, no, they're like, we just want one idea. And I think, you know, even when I'm writing blog posts or I'm creating programs or I'm writing a chapter in my book, it all comes down to this one headline, this one idea, because we can, and I take this back to high school English, you know, when you're writing essays and presentations, it's like you can't fit 50 messages in one essay. Just bring it back to one point, one through line. What are you trying to convey? And then that also helps you stay on track. So when I was constructing my talk, For me to keep coming back to my headline, that really helps me stay on track. Melissa, you bring up a good point. I don't think most of our listeners today have had that same experience of giving a TED Talk and going through the coaching. So this is a little foreign to them. And that's why I think it's so valuable. This whole idea of, well, the one idea and the fact that the TED coaches kept forcing you to come back to one idea. That's something in my advising when I talk, when I work with CEOs or executives. What is the one idea? Because what happens to most people is we open PowerPoint and we just start filling in ideas and pages and pages of facts and information and text and bullet points. There's no through line. There's no story arc. There's no visuals. We'll talk about that in a minute. I think it's very important to get to. But there's no one there coaching us to say one idea and one idea only. 
And that's why I think this is fundamental. Yeah. And then also it's like within this framework of let's continue with the TED Talk idea or any sort of presentation, you've got this one idea that you are trying to convey. And then it's like, how many different stories are you going to put in to convey that one idea? Is it just one story? Are you going to tell three little stories to convey that idea and bring that idea home? So there's so many little things that you need to think about when you're constructing a talk or in any sort of storytelling. But another thing that you speak about is the visuals, is the presentation. When we were getting coaching for my TED Talk, you know, they were like, just keep your slides really simple. We don't want a whole paragraph up there. You know, we want one sentence or one image or one word. And that's, you know, because people digest information very differently. There's visual learners, there's all different types of learners. And you really do have to take into consideration all the different types of learners and not overwhelm the audience. Well, it's interesting you say that. I I love this whole idea of the one image or the one word. That is very difficult for people to do. It's very difficult for presenters to do. Uh, because that's not what we've learned over the last 30 years of PowerPoint. I use PowerPoint as an example because 98% of us use PowerPoint. There's other great tools out there, but 98% of the people use PowerPoint. Uh, PowerPoint doesn't really give you that kind of template. When you open PowerPoint, it asks for a theme, it asks for a color scheme, and then it gives you room for your your topic, your, your overall headline, and then bullet points. Well, that's not exactly the best way of getting the information across. You can still use PowerPoint to put one sentence or a visual and a few words. This is called, there's actually science about this, this is called pictorial superiority. It simply means that our vision is more powerful than text, especially when we're looking at a a slide. Vision, visuals are much more powerful and more easily remembered than text or text alone. And this is very well known in the neuroscience literature. I personally learned this from a guy named John Medina, who wrote a great book called Brain Rules. Uh, So he's a molecular biologist, and he studies how the brain works. And, And he's a really big believer in this. He says, you know, it's all about the pictures, pictures over words. You can have some text, but very minimal text, like you said, uh, one, two, three words, maybe, maybe one sentence alongside an image or just images alone. Uh, But what's, what's happening, even if you're not necessarily a visual learner, let's say you're an auditory learner, but Melissa, it still, it, it presents a problem when you are speaking and I'm reading 100 words on a slide behind the brain. And this I, I also learned this from John Medina is incapable of multitasking. You think you can multitask. You actually can't. It, it has to focus on one thing or another. It doesn't do two things at the same time. You can stop one thing and jump to another very quickly. And you think you're multitasking, but you're, it's very hard to listen to somebody speak and read at the same time. That just doesn't happen. And yet, isn't that what all of us do? We just do this all the time. We throw up a whole bunch of words on a slide, and we talk through them as well. And 
often what we say is very different than the words on the slide. This is very common. I mean, this is every day when I'm working with with executives. But then when you actually, when you encourage them to go minimalistic, it's it's tough because we people are so not used to it. It feels so foreign to them. And yet, if you watch Steve Jobs' presentations, you will not find any bullet points on a Steve Jobs presentation. Look for them. They're almost impossible to find because they're images or one word or one sentence. Again, again, keeping in that, that TED style. That's why I believe that TED style, I don't believe it's just for TED. No. It's not just for TED. It, it's for just good communication. Yeah. It's any presentation, anything, any keynote speak, any work presentation that you've got to do. That's why I have now taken what I learned doing my TED talk and your work, and I now apply that to every keynote talk that I do. And I realized as well that it was my ego, it was my inner critic that wanted to jam pack all these ideas into one thought or one slide because I was like, but but I want to share that because I want to show that I know all of these things. I want to show that I know X, Y, and Z. But you have to remember that from any presentation, everyone is going to walk away with one, maybe two key takeaways. Like that's it. So you're better off really driving home your main key message. And for my instance, in my TED Talk, it was how your inner critic is holding you back. You may as well drive that home. So people walk away and go, this is what I got out of that. Or because I've watched so many talks. And if you said to me, remember that talk by so-and-so, what was the thing you took away from it? There's some people where I'm like, I don't even remember what it was about. And that's not what you want. Like with your messaging, with your talks, with your social media, with anything that you do, you want people to walk away, not only feeling inspired, but with a key takeaway that they can implement into their life. There's no point reading books and listening to TED Talks if you're not getting key messages that you can then implement to better yourself and to better your life. Like what's the point if we're not upgrading our life? And here's another thing we can learn from TED Docs. Let's move beyond that. How long did they give you? Do you recall? How long did they give you for your presentation? Well, most of them were all uh, 20 minutes. But when we were getting our coaching, our coaches were saying, we are now finding that people don't even have the brain width and the span to sit for 20 minutes. So they were like, if you can distill your message between 10 and 15 minutes, even better. Like they were like, you know, and mine was 14 minutes and 21 seconds. And I tried to cut it down even more. Like I was like, okay, I'm going to aim for about 10 minutes. I'm going to give a powerful 10 minute talk. And I really tried, I really tried, but it ended up being almost 14 and a half minutes. But it's so interesting when they shared that with us because we are bombarded with so much content these days. And we, you know, a lot of people are consuming 15 second bites or one minute bite size videos that even for these 20 minutes, people aren't retaining it. They're they're not watching the whole thing. So they're now saying, and they're now giving people the information that keeping it shorter is better. Yeah. So let's think about this. Uh, Most of the major TED Talks are the ones in Vancouver, like on the national TED stage, are up to 18 minutes. 
up to 18 or 20 minutes, like you said. But there is a very strict deadline, no matter who you are, whether you're Bill Gates or anyone else, that's all you get. Because they have found that there is a certain amount of time where people can, where you can keep a person's interest and then they fall asleep or they, or they, they get really bored and they move on. You know, there's science behind this too. And again, Ted came to it from a different angle, but there's science behind this. There is a, a number of studies out there that show that the human brain does get bored very easily. We tend to look for alternative sources of stimulation pretty quickly. That's why after about 10 minutes, and, and they have found it's about 10 minutes, your audience will begin looking at their watch. They'll begin thinking about what's for dinner, or you know, I wonder what appetizers they're going to serve at the cocktail reception. You know, it, it's they start moving away from listening to you. So there is sort of a, and from what I've read, I've actually read the research on this, we're not exactly sure why. Maybe we're just naturally ADD or something in our evolution, I don't know. But there seems to be an inherent built-in stopwatch where people just tune out. And it happens pretty quickly. So if you're planning a 30-minute presentation and you think that your listeners will carry on with you for an entire 30 minutes because you're that good and you have so much quality material that you'll just keep them you know, in the palm of your hand for 30 minutes, you're probably wrong. So what you need to do is get to the main point <laughs> and give them the information they need in 10 to 15 minutes. And then if they'd like to take it longer and do some Q&A, or if you'd like to do a demo and break it up a little bit, that's fine. That's terrific. So what I, what I have found with some great salespeople, too, is they will plan for about 10 minutes. They didn't even know about the science about the 10-minute rule. They just plan for about 10 to 15 minutes of content, and then they let their customer take it the rest of the way. If the customer wants to spend another hour asking questions and looking at a demo, terrific. But they only plan for about 10 or 15 minutes of content. I don't think most people do that. Again, they're not thinking about how their listener's brain processes information. So th this is where, what I mean when I say there's an art to it, but there's also science to it as well. So Ted is finding it, as well as other researchers. We do tune out after about 10 minutes. Now, now Melissa, let's, let's think this through. Uh, we've been speaking for about 40 minutes at this point. This is a podcast that's much longer. Why do you think we can keep, hopefully, <laughs> why, why do you think attention is longer on a podcast? That's a really good point. Do you think it's, well, I don't know. I mean, do you think it's because it's more conversation style or do you think maybe people are driving and listening at the same time and they're doing two things at once? Like, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think, I'm pretty sure about this because I've talked to a couple of neuroscientists about this. It's because there's, first of all, there's two voices. So we are having, so yes, you're, you're right. It's the conversation. So that when someone hears another voice, it's almost like their brain is starting from scratch again. We're kind of starting a new topic. It's a new speaker. It's someone new. It's it's breaking it up. Now this does see the whole ten minute rule does not mean that you can only speak for ten minutes. 
but it but you do need to be aware that most of your listeners after 10 minutes they're bored they need to move on now do, that could mean another speaker that could mean a demo that can mean uh, a q and a they just need the, the brain needs a break it doesn't mean they're completely bored of your topic and they don't want to hear another word but it needs a break it needs some kind of mini break before getting back into it I, I, I should have been clear. It doesn't mean that you have to end your presentation after 10 minutes, but your brain needs a mini break after 10 minutes. That's a really good point. And you can do that through even just like, everyone get up, you know, shake it out, you know, just something so little like, okay, turn to the person next to you and give them a little massage. Like I've been to so many talks where they've done that. <laughs> I like that. Yes. Yeah, everyone stand up and let's do 10 squats or 10 push ups or let's put on a song and dance. And it really does shift the state, shift the energy, and then almost like resets everybody to relearn again. So I love that. That's such a great tip. Yeah. Reset. I like that. Let's call it a reset. That's what we're doing. So we've given so many great tips for people that they can apply to every single talk, not just a TED talk, any presentation, even Facebook lives, even Instagram lives. Like Everything that we've shared so far translates across any medium. And I just am wondering if there's any other presentation secrets that you could share that are really going to transform leaders into powerful storytellers. Yes, there there are many. (laughs) There are many. Let's talk about the, I think, something that's probably on everyone's mind. And they are going to be reluctant to say it. Most people do have a certain level of stage fright. So all of these great tips that we're offering, the storytelling, the 10-minute rule, the visuals, it still doesn't calm people down, okay? Most people do are anxious about public speaking. And I'll bet there's a lot of our listeners who get very nervous when they're giving a presentation. Uh, Some people are more open about it than others. Uh, I teach a course at Harvard uh, twice a year and and other universities as well. And I also work with CEOs. Melissa, I cannot tell you how many people come up to me. And these are senior executives who have accomplished quite a great deal in their lives. And many of them are very wealthy too. I've lost count of how many people will tell me privately, not in front of their peers or group, hey, Carmine, I've got a real, you know, I just get really anxious when I'm public speaking or when I have to give a presentation. I my, I choke up, my, my throat gets dry, my palms get sweaty, my heart races. I hate I hate doing it. Do you ever hear that, Melissa? I'm sure you've you've seen it from people. I'm sure the TED Talks get that all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... I feel nervous, like not all the time, but like before my TED talk, I felt like I was standing in the wings and I had butterflies in my tummy. My hands were clammy, but I was also really excited. It was a combination of excitement and nerves. And I knew it was what I was meant to be doing. I have never... I love public speaking. I love it. If Give me a microphone and put me on a stage and this is what I was born to do. But that doesn't mean I still don't feel a little bit nervous sometimes. 
Okay, excellent, excellent. So two things about what you've just said. One, you do this all the time. You do, you do a lot of public speaking. Most people are very nervous about, I mean, t- take how you felt before the TED Talk and multiply that by 100. That's how most people feel just a, on a, a basic presentation to a customer or an investor pitch. I think public speaking is the number one fear over death. Yeah, yeah, I've I've heard that too, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's it's definitely up there, especially from what I've heard. So, people get these butterflies, and it prevents them from being everything they can be, especially as a great leader and a communicator, because they don't do it enough. They avoid it. So, what you've done is actually something that psychologists say is very important. We all, and there's a great lesson for everybody. We all get a little nervous. Uh, you can call them butterflies, what have you. We all get a little nervous when we're speaking in front of other people. And that's okay. We, we evolved to be social animals. Thousands of years ago, those ancestors of ours who were not accepted in a group would be banished from the cave or the tribe. That wasn't a good thing. So, we are hardwired to want to make a favorable impression on other people. Isn't that interesting? It's like we're actually hardwired for this. It's completely natural. You are supposed to get butterflies. And if you don't, then there's other things, other problems. <laughs> so we are supposed but But you, you were able to take those butterflies, and I heard a great line once, Melissa, have them fly in formation. In other words, kind of channel them into something positive and energetic. Yeah, I love that so much. And I think that's a really important note that you just made that we all have it. It is innate within us. It comes back from when we were in tribes. So everyone is going to feel those butterflies and that's okay. It doesn't mean that it's not for you. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. It's, you know, comes back to that one of my favorite sayings, which is feel the fear and do it anyway and transform those butterflies into beautiful formations. That's what I do. And it also reminds me that when I feel those nerves before I'm about to speak, before I'm about to do a live or anything like that, it means to me, it reminds me that it's important to me because if I didn't feel those butterflies, it means I wouldn't care. And then that means that maybe this isn't what I'm meant to be doing in the world, but I know that this is what I'm meant to be doing in the world. I am here to help people, to serve people, to unlock their full potential and to empower them to step into their best selves. And if I don't feel a little bit of butterflies, then, you know, the day that I stop feeling those butterflies means that I may have to look at what I'm doing and maybe change it. Exactly. Somebody once told me, a psychologist told me, it's not about overcoming don't, don't say you're going to overcome your fear of public speaking because it, it's ingrained in you. You don't overcome it. You can manage it. We all have that fear. It could be small or it could be absolutely paralyzing to almost most people are terrified of public speaking. But if you can learn to manage it, you've learned to manage it. You've learned to take, take whatever that nervous feeling is. And I've labeled it a nervous feeling. It's just nervous. It's just a feeling. And you've been able to channel it into something positive, whereas most people, 
look at it as something negative. Oh, I'm nervous. Oh, and then, and then what happens? You get more nervous because you've just told yourself your nerve, your inner critic, right? Getting back to your dead dog. <laughs> and your inner critic is the worst because your inner critic starts saying, oh, I'm terrible at public speaking. Or I got really nervous. It was so embarrassing. I got nervous. I remember I was in school. People tell me this all the time, Listen, Oh, I was in school. It was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And I had to get up there and I was so nervous and it was so embarrassing. I hate public speaking. It's like, wait, wait, wait you, you, you were nervous because you were an eighth grader and you didn't like talking in front of your the kids and you're still nervous now that you're a business professional because it goes back to that inner critic. They never lost it. So their inner critic for 20 years has told them you're terrible at public speaking or you get nervous. <laughs> no, it's that you're labeling it nerves. You're labeling it. So here is a technique that I've actually, that I've learned from uh, sports professionals and it works for public speaking as well. A, uh, let's say soccer player. Okay. So, um, do they call it football in Australia or soccer? We have soccer and then we, football for us is like rugby union or rugby league. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah. Rugby. So if you are a uh, soccer player, right, you're the, uh, how do they practice penalty kicks? How does our American football, they practice, you know, m- m- making the, the, the last kick for, for the championship? Or how does a golfer practice a three-foot putt? So what happens is they all choke. You know, that's what happens. Uh, Many of them choke when the pressure is on. So what they do is they practice and practice and practice. And they practice under real-world conditions or as close to real-world conditions as possible. So that's why uh, golfers do play games uh, with each other or with their friends. they they put they play small bets on those three foot putts because they need to give themselves a little stress a little pressure. So a few a few neuroscientists and psychologists say that this also applies to public speaking. The reason why people get nervous when they are public speaking or giving a presentation they don't do it but because most people are so nervous they just don't do it very often like you do. So you've you've become accustomed to it. So what you have to do is when you practice. This is the best advice I've ever heard. Put yourself under real-world conditions. Practice in front of people. Get up, deliver your presentation in front of two people, your friends or your peers. Don't just say, oh, okay, well, I've I've done my slides. Slides look great, and I know what I'm going to say on slide number two. I'm ready for it. And then you get up there, and as soon as the slideshow starts, you start feeling the nerves. It's because you actually have not practiced. You haven't really practiced. So that's why that's why you're going to choke over that three foot putt. You know, <laughs> you got to practice it. Yeah, practice is so key. I gave my TED talk. I practiced so many times, and I don't usually learn my talks word for word, but when you do TED talks, you have to learn them word for word because you have this specific time. And with all of my other keynotes, I kind of have bullet points more so, and I then I just speak from the heart in the moment. But it was a really different experience for me to memorize it word for word. It took me back to, you know, when you're in high school and you have to learn your presentations off by heart. But really, practice is absolute key 
to delivering. And like you said, you know, Steve Jobs, he practiced, practiced, practiced. But in front of people, yeah, in front of people, and Steve Jobs would go on a stage, like a real stage, a big stage, and he would pretend that he was speaking in front of thousands, but he always would have like some core executives there who would give him feedback. And he would get out of character at the end of the presentation or slide, and he'd literally, he'd get out of character. And one person who I know, because uh, I've written about him, but one person who I know who was in one of these shows or one of these dress rehearsals said it was almost weird because here's a guy who was putting on a show and then all of a sudden he talked to us like a normal person. And it's because he was practicing. He was delivering the presentation as he would be in that auditorium. So it's not, it's not just practice. It's practicing how you would actually give that presentation. So key. So key. I love it. Such great points. I'd now love to shift the gears and focus a little bit more on you. And I want to know if you had a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world. Now, besides your books, what is one book you would choose? It's a psychology book. Have you have you ever mentioned or have you folks talked about Daniel Kahneman's work? No. Ah, okay, look it up. So Kahneman, uh, K-A-H-N, E-M-A-N. Daniel Kahneman is a Nobel Prize winning uh, economist slash psychologist at Princeton. He wrote one of the best-selling nonfiction books that, has uh, been around for many years called Thinking Fast Slow. Yeah, Thinking Fast, comma, Slow, Daniel Kahneman. I love that title. So Daniel Kahneman and Traversky, who was his co-partner, is starting in the 1970s. These were the guys who first identified a lot of the biases that you have probably read about. Things like confirmation bias, you know, where, where we tend to hang around people who are who confirm what we believe, you know, or we read things that confirm what we believe. Well, all of all of those biases, those mental biases, that actually comes from Kahneman's work. Most of it. Uh, there's something called availability bias. Uh, so we tend to fear things that we see more often than not, which is why television news always focuses on bad things. And a lot of this book, Thinking Fast, Slow, does have to do with communication skills, which is why I like it. So it has to do with how you think. It helps you to think better, more rationally about things. It helps with your public speaking. It helps with your nerves. It just changes the way you think by exploring how the brain works and why it has certain biases. He calls it biases. He calls it heuristics, which are just these little cognitive things that have been with us since the beginning of time, but don't work for us as well as they did thousands of years ago. So it it really is a book that, from a psychology point of view, will help you in so many ways. Public speaking being one of them. I think that's where I first learned about this whole idea that we see threats more than we see the positive, which kind of sounds like your your inner critic talk a little bit as well, uh, that we see everything. The critic is because we do tend to be more negative than positive. 
That served us well thousands of years ago, because if you saw somebody for the first time, you had to instantly decide whether that was friend or foe. So seeing it as a threat worked out better for you most of the time. But now when you're in front of an audience and you see everyone as a threat, not so good. So that's the, that is the one book I would recommend. Well, amazing. We'll link to it in the show notes as well as all of your amazing books so everyone can grab those. But I'd love to hear now, I like hearing about how successful people prime themselves for their day. Do you have a morning routine? Like, How do you set yourself up for a successful day? I try to stay away, especially after reading these type of books, I try to stay away from negatives. So I'm definitely in a more of a quiet place when I wake up. I read a couple of papers, and I hate to admit it, but I'm going to admit it here because I love it. I love getting real newspapers. <laughs> I love the texture. <laughs> I, I can't just do digital. I So I still, even though I've got a digital subscription to the Wall Street Journal, I love getting a paper and opening it and having a pen and starting to draw on it. I, I need to feel something. Uh, so that's kind of fun. But that's what I do in the morning. I, I'll either exercise. And I do that about five times a week, or I go to websites that are very positive. There's one called Human Progress, which I love. But I love kind of starting with positive news so I don't get overwhelmed with negativity. And then I'll read something like the Wall Street Journal that kind of teaches me something new about the economy or world business. And, you know, have my cappuccino, my latte, and then I'm, I'm pretty good to go. <laughs> that's that's what that's my morning routine. Love it, love it. I'll also spend on Saturdays. I spend about ninety minutes reading both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times to get a full perspective of the world, and it actually saves me a lot of time because that means I'm not you know addicted to cable news all day or on Twitter all day. It saves me a lot of time because I just kind of look at the essays. I get different perspectives on what's happening in the world, and then I can move on with my day. Mm, love it. Love it. All right. I've got three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. In your opinion, what's one of the most important things that we can do today for our health? Eat more fruits and vegetables and step up your exercising. Yeah. Love it. What's one of the most important things that we can do for our wealth? So more abundance in all areas of our life. See the world as abundant. You really do attract what what you look for. My good, my goodness, I've seen that in uh, in my Harvard classes are mostly foreign or international people who go to these Harvard classes. Uh, I teach executive education, and the people who come to America who are suddenly who are very successful are typically the ones who come from impoverished areas, but they come to America, for example, and they only see opportunity. So it's very interesting to me. I, I think if you look at the world as opportunity, opportunity tends to find you. You tend to attract it. Yes, I love that. And what's one of the most important things that we can do for more love in our life? Look at the positive, right? That, that, that's, that's one of those books I read recently on this whole negativity aspect, the bias that we have toward the negative. And so if, you, if you're with a spouse, for example, you tend to look for the negative. It's ingrained in us. So you do have to work at it. You have to work at finding positive about that. That's why I get along with so many people. I get along with people all over the world in, in different 
politics and different companies, whoever they may be, I think it's because I tend to look for the positive first. Until you prove to me that you are not someone you know I, I want to hang around. Uh, but no, it's I think it's looking for being grateful and looking for the positive first. That's a beautiful quality to have. I love that. So beautiful. So inspiring. Did I go? Did I go too long on your? rapid fire questions. I'm sorry. No, it's all good. I'm so grateful for your time. Is there anything else that you want to share? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't get to ask you about? I think we've covered a lot about communication. I just want people to know and understand that communication is a skill that is fundamental to their success, but above all, it is a skill that anyone can build to get from where they are today to where they want to go. So be positive and optimistic about it because it really is a skill that anyone can improve upon. Yes, I love that. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been incredible. I'm a massive believer in service and I want to know what I can do and the listeners can do to give back and serve you today because you give so much. How can we give back to you? Oh, please. Uh, just go to my website. It's CarmineGallo.com. So it's a good Italian name if you can remember it. Like me. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Carmine Gallo, G-A-L-L-O. And there, please uh, sign up for my newsletter. Every week I send out a, a new newsletter that focuses on some aspect of communication, but often it's interviews that I've done with experts or authors or business advisors. And it's the books that I read. Uh, publishers send me books ahead of time, nonfiction, leadership type books. Uh, so I put this all in a, in a great newsletter that comes out Tuesdays or Thursdays once a week. So CarmineGallo.com. Just follow me or sign up for my newsletter or follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, if you just search my name, it's typically enough to find me on different social media platforms. And we can link to it in the show notes. So it's super easy for everybody. Okay, good. Yeah, excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I've got so many extra tips out of this and I'm inspired to do my next talk. I've got one in two weeks, so I'm going to apply everything that we have spoken about. So thank you so much for your time. It's been so awesome to connect with you and to hear your words of wisdom. Thank you. And congratulations on the success of your podcast as well. Thank you so much. Sending lots of love. How awesome was that? I got so much out of it. So many things I'm going to implement into my talks that I do. I've got a keynote talk coming up this week, so I'm going to take on board some of these things. And I kind of wish I had have listened to this or done this interview before my TED Talk. But I think I did a good job anyway. If you haven't had a chance to watch my TED Talk, I'll link to it in the show notes. Or you can just Google Melissa Ambrosini TED and it will come up. So I hope you guys got a lot out of today's episode. Whether you want to start giving talks or even just being a better speaker at your work or whatever it is you do, there's so much in this for everyone. And if you did get a lot out of this, I would love so much if you would click subscribe and leave me a review in iTunes or in your podcast app because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that you could potentially be the review of the week for next week. And don't forget to email me a screenshot of your review to hello at melissaambrosini.com. And as a thank you, I will send you my wildly wealthy meditation. 
And don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from this episode. I absolutely love reading every single one of them. So please keep them coming. And for everything that we mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 285. And you can also listen to all my other episodes there too. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here. I don't take this lightly. I am so grateful that you have listened all the way to the end and that you give me your time to better yourself, to be the best, the healthiest and the happiest version of you. It's so inspiring to be here with you and sharing with you. So well done you for showing up today. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.